What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. everybody welcome back another week of the midnight myth very pumped to be here today yeah welcome to the midnight myth podcast the podcast where we talk about pop culture and the mythological philosophical historical roots thereof yeah and you know what i'm gonna say this at the beginning of the episode if you like what you're listening to hit us up on the tweets the twitters where all the things are happening come out and add us uh subscribe to our podcast Share it with your friends, family, and loved ones. And uh, anyway, let's jump into this week's episode. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. So as many of you know who are listeners of the show and have been from the beginning, for those of you who are new to the show, we want to talk about one of our favorite programs that we have mentioned before, that is Doctor Who. In particular, because once every three years or so, we cross this new precipice where we leave one doctor and we get a new. We have to say goodbye to the old doctor by welcoming in the new doctor. And it's always kind of a lukewarm thing for us Doctor Who fans. Bittersweet. Bittersweet. Absolutely. You know, usually there's a part of us that's like, all right, we're itching and we're ready for the new doctor. If we're hardcore fans of the show, such as we are, we being me and Laurel, that... um, Maybe you even know who the new doctor is going to be because you've been reading all the casting and all the rumors, and they're usually introduced before we say goodbye to the old doctor. So you get this sense of excitement that the new doctor's coming, whereas you also are a little sad that the old doctor is leaving. Yeah, you've spent you know a few years or a few millennia, depending on uh, the span of the uh, the previous seasons with this doctor, and you've gotten to know them with a number of companions, the way that they are with humans, the way that they are with non-humans, and you've seen the real depths of their soul over the past few seasons with them. So it can be hard to let go, but also exciting to look to the horizon and meet somebody new in that really iconic role. So we're going to discuss an aspect of the Doctor Who sort of mythos a part of it that makes the doctor changing from one person to another possible in the narrative and try to connect that to some historical and mythological roots and really extrapolate upon it. And really what I want to talk about this night is the origin of the idea of resurrection, the idea that through death, a human can be reborn and reborn into a new form. And I think 
the Doctor Who resurrection, or rather in the show they call it regeneration, is sort of an echo of this very, very, very ancient idea in human storytelling, mythology, and religion. Absolutely. And while it is a a mechanic of the television program that's been on for 60 years or so, to have this regeneration in order to perpetuate the cycle, in order to keep casting younger actors or just newer actors, to keep the show going as long as humanly possible or time lordly possible, while it is that mechanic just for the, uh, the longevity of the show, It is certainly something that is continually mined within the episodes that deal directly with it, the regeneration. It's continually mined for the emotional impact and the mythical impact of it. It lends to the sort of mythical status of this character. So it'll be a really interesting thing for us to dive into tonight to explore how each doctor confronts it, to explore how our latest doctor, Farewell Peter Capaldi, uh, has confronted it, and to really look back at what it's reminding us with, what is what it is uh, resonating with in the sort of long, long history of, of mythical legacy that leads to it. So I'd like to go back and to my best recollection, and if anyone out there knows contrary, please let me know, the oldest myths of rebirth, the idea of dying and being reborn, Um, stem back to ancient Egypt. There's a very famous myth, and it is the myth of Isis and Osiris. And it is not Isis as we know it as the Islamic State, but Isis as the Egyptian deity and Osiris. And how this myth goes is Osiris is a god, but is also the first king of a unified Egypt. So he's king of what is considered upper and lower Egypt. In the ancient world, Egypt was two kingdoms, and then occasionally was ruled by one king, which those are considered the great pharaoh periods as we know them today. Right. And upper and lower Egypt are funny, right? Because of the way the Nile flows. Yes. If you're looking at a map, upper Egypt is actually south. Is and southern lower Egypt. Egypt is north because, because the it, Nile it, flows. Because the, the Nile flows north. So that's the way the Egyptians sort of delineated between upper and lower. And that's the way we do today. So Osiris is the mythic God, first king of Egypt, and he is organizing Egypt into a right order. He takes his sister as a wife named Isis, and all's pretty splendid in the kingdom. And then the brother Set comes, and he's a little jealous. So he constructs a, uh, essentially a sarcophagus, the first ever sarcophagus, and structures it to the dimensions of Osiris's body and tricks Osiris into the sarcophagus and then goes and buries him off in some foreign land, uh, still in like the Egyptian like sphere. And this makes uh, Isis sad, so she goes and finds him. She tries to find him. She can't find him. Long story short, she eventually gets him out of this coffin slash sarcophagus. Set realizes what's happening, so he rips Osiris's body into 14 pieces, then hides all of the pieces at different areas of Egypt. Isis goes and finds each piece and puts them back together. The only piece she could not find was Osiris's penis, which had been eaten by a bunch of fish, and she curses these fish to never eat again, and this fish breed dies out. So she constructs a wooden penis for him, 
She uh, has sex with dead Osiris with the wooden penis and conceives a son named Horus. It's not Kanye West. I was just thinking of a, a punchline to weave in fish dicks. Anyway, go on. No. Is that a South Park reference? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was like, oh, how, do, how can I get fish dicks in there? <laughs> you Kanye did it. West. All right. Yeah. Go on. Go Mo- on. Horus. Moving on. Um, wow, moving on. So, Horus. <laughs> long story short, um, Set doesn't ever get to become king. Horus becomes king, the uh, son of Isis and Osiris. Osiris begets another son after he's been stitched back together with Isis, even though he is dead. And that's, that son is also named Horus because there's two Horuses in Egyptian mythology. And Osiris becomes the lord of the underworld. So his job is to oversee souls as they go to the underworld and preside judgment. He becomes the god of resurrection. He becomes the god of the Nile. He also becomes... Every dead pharaoh becomes Osiris. So when a pharaoh dies, and a pharaoh is living, the pharaoh is Horus on earth. And then when the pharaoh dies, the pharaoh becomes Osiris in death. And these are not symbolic to the ancient Egyptian. These are literal. To understand that, you have to understand a way of thinking called mythopoetic, which I believe we've mentioned in the podcast before. But uh, the way the Greeks called mythopoetic thinking is pre-logos or pre-logic. The Greeks like to use logic, evidence, observations, predictions, where in a mythopoetic society, you use myth, poetry, and song to explain natural phenomenon. In a mythopoetic society, um, logically structured society, there's no such thing as mutually exclusive, two things that can't be true at the same time. You know, so in other words, what we call a paradox, they would just call their their actual knowledge. So long story short, why do I go to this myth as the start to the doctor? Well, I think we can understand the doctor's regeneration within the shadow of the Osiris regeneration Mm. in a lot of fun ways, some accidental and maybe some literal. So a fun way, Osiris's body is cut up into 14 parts. We're now on our 14th doctor. That's just a fun, happy coincidence, right? (laughs) But it's, it's worth pointing out, you know, that we see that Two, that I think understanding the ancient Egyptian structures of knowledge as mythopoetic. It's kind of the world doctor who lives in paradoxes, things that are impossible, things that we can't imagine to be true, but are true. In a way, the Doctor Who's science is a, it's so advanced that it's magic to us. Right. Using a screwdriver to scan someone, you know, all of these things that just seem logically impossible. Psychic paper. Psychic paper. All of this, like, absurdity that I think resonates to a, you know, someone who has grown in a society of logic, such as, modern America in a modern American education. I can see all these things as doctor who is, you know, nonsensical flips of fancy all within the sci-fi umbrella in the same way that I can understand these myths. And then the, I think the, the nail on the sarcophagus, if you will, (laughs) is that the doctor is constantly regenerating. And when the doctor is regenerating, they are both, the new doctor that we see and the old doctor that we have perceived. 
And in many ways, when Osiris is ripped to shreds and sewn back together, he is reborn and is the new Osiris. He's no longer the king of Egypt because he's died, but he is still the same Osiris that he was before. And in that way, the Pharaoh becomes an Osiris and becomes the Osiris in the similar way when they die as when the doctor resurrects. And I don't think this is like a a pretty line from ancient Egypt to the doctor. But what I'd say is if we didn't have these myths of resurrection, a character like the doctor would be harder for us to accept. Yeah. And what else happens along that line, though? Because we're, we're talking about comparative mythology and storytelling here. Even if we start as far back as Osiris, we have to follow that line into uh, other forms of uh, ancient Near Eastern and Eastern philosophy into Hinduism, where the great heroes of myth and folktale are incarnations of Vishnu, of the god Vishnu on Earth. Then we have to follow that line to the resurrection stories of Christ. Uh, and these are... These are myths that are deep, deep within our subconscious, that are are second nature to us, no matter where on this earth we originated. We have encountered some of these myths at some point. And so they form a basis of something that allows us to have this character who is mythopoetic, who does, uh, you know, who does radiate outward into the universe that he explores. This is the doctor you mean? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There, there are legends and myths about the doctor in every system of, of every galaxy of every, in every time infinite universe. Uh, he becomes a sort of godlike figure who has this, you know, supernatural ability to regenerate and regeneration is sort of super entwined with reincarnation uh, in in this version of that myth, right? So it's not a dying and coming back exactly as you are. It's a complete rending apart of every cell in your body and every connection in your brain and a reassembling, just like Osiris, being torn apart into pieces and put back together again a little bit different. Uh, that's how we experience the doctor's regeneration is by completely pulling him or her apart putting him back together and seeing something new that still has a little bit of a through line. That's a really good point. And I will add that Osiris in the myth, the, when he gets, you know, put back together, he is also the first mummy in ancient Egypt, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. So he, so that is where we get the tradition of mummification of important people that in order to get them to the afterlife, their body needs to be mummified and preserved the way that Osiris's was, you know? But what I think is interesting is that the myth of Osiris and Isis is very much about establishing the right Egyptian order. You know, it's about establishing the idea of Egyptianness and Egyptian religion and Egyptian fertility, um, both in the kingly and in the Nile, which is the source of the fertility. And the doctor is constantly also fighting to maintain the right order, though it's not the order of ancient Egypt, it's the order of, of time. Right. He's constantly yeah, time trying, and space. trying to keep that. He knows when time can be rewritten. He also knows when time uh, cannot be rewritten. He has the ability to literally tinker with time. And he just, as audience members, this power that he has to know when time's in flux, 
or to know when he can't change something is never explained. It is a right. or innate ability of the Time Lord. In other words, it's a magic power that they have. Yeah. So that is very deity-like, but uh, like uh, Osiris, Osiris looks like an Egyptian king. The Time Lord looks like a human. So many of the Egyptian gods are known for having animal and human parts simultaneously, Mm -hmm. not Osiris. Yeah. Osiris is all human, nor is Isis all human in the way that they are. Well, Isis sometimes isn't. She looks like a bull sometimes. But for the most part, when you see Isis, she's just like a human. And the doctor, the time lords, they look human. They sound human and often pass as humans if they people weren't really paying attention. Um, And I feel like, there is this this connection in that story, I think, to me, resonates. Now, obviously, resurrection is a huge theme in, in Egyptian, I'm sorry, in human mythology and human religion. Yeah. So you, you're absolutely right that we can't discredit the, the line between Osiris, the ancient Hinduism, which actually, that ancient Hindu resur- or reincarnation may be older than Egyptian mythology. I'm not sure which is older. Yeah, I'm I'm not great with dates. Well, I know the Upanishads is the oldest written text, but the Egyptians were around before the ancient Indians. So I'm not sure which predates which. Anyway, getting bogged down in the details. But I wanted to point out something that you said before about fertility and about the natural world, which I, I think is important to highlight in, in any resurrection myth. And we've talked about before, whenever we get to uh, holidays, that we love and that we have, we do an episode on, we talk about the regeneration of the earth and the regeneration inherent in the natural cycle of the earth. And how holidays are often markers of these, of these, um, you know, natural cycles. And, uh, I think resurrection myths are, are inextricably tied to that cycle, right? So the, um, resurrection of Osiris is tied to the, you know, surge and, uh, you know, recession of the Nile, um, the story of Persephone and Demeter is uh, and Hades is naturally tied to the the seasons of the earth and the fertility of women and the cycle of you know women growing up and getting married and moving on with their lives. So there's this connection to the natural cycle that when then we you know pull outward, we zoom out, if you will, to the entire universe and to that fabric of space time. And the doctor and his regeneration has to be tied in some way to this, you know, natural cycle of rebirth and, uh, and renewal of time. Yikes. That's crazy. Yeah. So before we, we move deeper into the who lore, $64,000 question for you. Why do you think resurrection is such a major theme in human storytelling, mythology, and religion? Well, part of it, I think, is is what we just mentioned uh, about trying to understand and, uh, and guard against the natural cycles of the earth um, and, and the year. I think a lot of it has to do with the death anxiety and, uh, and the fear of time and the recognition that time is your enemy on this earth. Um, finding a way to transcend time is uh, is something that each and every one of us is dealing with constantly just on a day-to-day level. 
you know, how to have enough time to finish your projects and still have time to spend with your family and how to turn back the hands of time as they wreak havoc on your body. Or uh, am, am I making use of my time Am I making appropriately? use of my time? Do I, do I have enough time left? It's, it, it's a ticking clock, our time on this earth. And as scary as it is for us now, it must have been extremely scary for the societies that were first, you know, forging their way through this planet and trying to understand it without any, um, you know, really sound logical systems to understand it. Interesting. So I think it's natural that mythology, uh, you know, erupted out of that fear to help manage it. Interesting. Right. I, I, I think that's a really, really interesting way of framing it. I don't know how the common, ancient Egyptian, or even the average ancient Egyptian pharaoh felt about time. Simply don't know because, you know, they didn't write it down for us to perceive it. Certainly, you know, there were Greek philosophers and uh, Greek poets and uh, Roman poets, uh, ancient Indic poets and philosophers and writers who wrote down so we can kind of get a glimpse into how they felt. I've often gotten this sense that it was probably, 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 yeah, it would probably be easier for the ancient mind to grapple with simply because the answers that you had to those questions were absolute. So if you're an ancient Egyptian, you know your role in the universe. It's clearly spelled out. There's no ambiguity to it. You have a duty to the Pharaoh who is a living God You do the work to the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh will give you food and then you will perish. And if you do a good enough job and your family has just enough money to get you mummified, you can get seen before Osiris and get to live in the afterlife. Yeah. If not, maybe your ancestors get to do that. And I feel like if you 100% believe that to be true, there's a level of comfort there that you're not wasting your time. Yeah. I wonder how much, you know, understanding resurrection we understand it from our modern perspective. Cause I, what I think you said was spot on, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I don't know if that's the reason it pops up in the ancient world. Maybe, you know, and sometimes it does, but in particular with ancient Egypt, I think it's more about, um, understanding the, like the, the intuition of patterns yeah. that humans can observe. Right. The sun rises and sets in the same place every day. The Nile floods and doesn't flood at the same time of the year. Yeah. The Pharaoh lives, the Pharaoh dies, you know, and you can see these cycles and saying, why do these cycles exist? And clearly life as a human is different than life as an animal. So clearly death for an animal is not like death for a human. Except cats. Except for cats. That resurrection is is a possibility. Yeah. The idea that there is more beyond this is just the next phase of this, what they are perceiving as this natural cycle. I don't know if it's like an existential thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, no. And, and I don't mean to, uh, to, it is for me now. That. It is for it, us now. It is for me yeah. <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah. We cling to those. We, we still cling to those myths and religion, you know, still has, a massive hold over our society, even though we're not mythopoetic anymore, even though we have science and we have logic, it's important to have something that gives you answers 
you know, something to have faith in in a, a society where the answers that were given by science aren't always super satisfying. Oh, sure. You know, I have a good friend of mine who's a physicist who, uh, I think I've said this on the pod before, but if I have and you've heard it before, I apologize uh, for boring you. If you're new to the podcast, then give <laughs> us a review. You're awesome and I love you. But uh, a friend of mine who's a physicist who says, name one major real question that science has answered. And all of the right. major ones, where did we come from? Why are we here? Does this mean anything? You know, is there life outside of our planet? Like all of these huge, huge questions. Is there a heaven or hell? You know, like science has no answer for. Right. It still doesn't. Yeah. You know, um, so science still can't answer those big questions. And I think if science can't, and I always feel like we talk about, this is totally off topic, science, like it's this personified force in the universe. Yeah, like it's a god like, in itself. Well, science can't answer it, so then obviously we must turn to this other thing. But, you know, I digress. I uh, Would it be fun to talk about some Peter Capaldi-specific moments? Yeah, I would love to just... Uh you know, moving out of uh, that question of, you know, why resurrection myths uh, reiterate so many times through uh, through ancient mythologies and just moving into uh, that, that question of what we're dealing with today and why the doctor's regeneration is almost a, you know, a religious resurrection myth for some, uh, for some fans and for some, you know, people who enjoy that show. Um, one of the things that it does for me every three years or so when this happens and the doctor regenerates, I, I do have to take a moment and reassess. This is a, a, a startling and significant transition on you know, a television program uh, and an actor is being replaced by another actor. But on you know, a, another level, it's a moment where a character, where a fully-fledged uh, non-human being is being torn apart, like I said, and replaced with something new. Uh, and we are meant to understand that this character has continuity, that this character knows and has its own memories from the, the one it was before, but becomes someone totally different. And that's so shocking, right? Um, and something that would never happen in real life, except that it kind of does for all of us. It doesn't happen on, you know, the, the drop of a hat like it does for the doctor. But at, uh, from a biological perspective, our bodies are changing so rapidly. We can't see it because it's not happening again with a, a snap. But our cells every few years are completely regenerated and shed. Our bodies change and they grow older and they, uh, you know, they flourish or they fade, and our personalities and our minds grow and sharpen and weaken, uh, you know, as we as we move through life. And it happens so slowly we don't notice it. But I've found myself, you know, when the doctor regenerates, like looking back at where I was the last time this happened and thinking, "Wow, I live in a different city, or I have a different group of friends, or." My life is in a totally different place than I thought it would be. I have different dreams. I have different fears. I have different anxieties. And, you know, I'm a different weight or I'm a different age or I have more gray hairs or, you know, I have a completely different hair color because I dyed it. And it's kind of a crazy thing. And when the doctor changes, we mourn for the old doctor, right? It's like they die and somebody else takes their place. 
Um, but then we grow to love them again and we recognize that it is the same person. And this is something that we all kind of have to do on a, a pretty regular basis is look back at who we were and think, wow, I can't believe that was me. Or like, wow, I missed that thing in myself. I wish I could do that again. Or I wish I had never done that. I'm rambling a little bit, but do you understand what I'm I totally, saying? I totally get what you're saying, yeah. It's kind of this crazy thing because we have total continuity from day to day and from do year we? to year. We think we do. We have a semblance of it because we keep the same name and we have all the memories, but a uh, major, are we the same person? I mean, a major problem for epistemology, if you're not familiar with the term, it is the philosophical study of knowledge, saying, mm-hmm. how do we know what we know? So if you say, I know my name is Derek, an epistemologist would say, how do you know your name is Derek? Right. Right? So one of the questions in epistemology is the self. Does the self sustain through time? If you have completely regenerated new cells, are you the same person? Right. And I think Doctor Who asks that question as well. Yeah, if in all your of, face. all of the cells have regenerated and are starkly different, but has the same memories, is this the same doctor? I think the show, time and time again, constantly answers that question and says, yes. Yeah. Yes, it is the same doctor. Yeah. But the question is always asked at each regeneration, and it's like an inflection point for us to ask, hey, am I still me? How have I changed? What ways have I grown? And what ways have I maybe shrunk and not grown? Right. You know, what am I really proud of where I'm at? Where... Am I not so proud? And I think when we look at Doctor Who as a metaphor of our own cellular regeneration, then I think it really causes us to reflect, hey, you know, David Tennant brought this, Matt Smith brought this, Peter Capaldi brought this, and they brought all of these dis- different aspects to the Doctor. Yeah. It begs the question, what am I bringing to myself which is and one of relationships, the relationships, yeah. The neat things about that show. So I totally think you're you're yeah. on point. And I think we see it the starkest when the companion remains the same, but the doctor changes. You know the uh, the strain in the relationship between Rose and the doctor when right. um, you know uh, Christopher Eccleston turned into uh, David Tennant, or the difference uh, you know between Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi when it came to the relationship with Clara. That can be really jarring and upsetting sometimes. It's like watching a person that you love or falling out with a person that you love over time um, happens again at the drop of a hat. And that's tragic and scary. But then we, again, the show answers that question. Yes, this is the same heart. This is the same two hearts, uh, you know, that beat in this incredibly powerful and moral and kind uh, being in the universe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do we want to talk at all about the actual show? Because <laughs> we what have it. Sh- what show? <laughs> Doctor Who. What is what kind of what is this? With the remaining time that what we have. What did you think this was? Yes, I do. Because I, I, been- I feel bad because our our David Tennant episode and our Matt Smith episode, we went really hard into a Doctor Who episode. We haven't even mentioned a Peter Capaldi episode yet. Well, let's do it. I think it's been really cool to explore the epistemology of the character. Sure. Um, but let's get in. Let's talk about some of our favorite uh, Capaldi moments. So my favorite episode was from season nine, episode 11, Heaven Sent. I thought that was Peter Capaldi's 
best moment as the doctor. I think it was one of his best performances. Absolutely. And I think it was the point where I'm like, this doctor has come. Yeah. It, he really crystallized for me in that episode. Uh, and he's pretty much alone in that episode. He only he really is. talks to himself. There are some other figures and some other bodies in the episode, but no one else to play off of. And he really magnificently pulls off that performance. But for a little bit of a refresher for our listeners who are Doctor Who fans, that's the episode post um, Clara's, uh, Clara's death, quote unquote, and uh, it places him in this sort of gothic castle maze uh, where he is constantly running from this monster um, and trying to uh, get away with it and solve the puzzle of this castle that has been laid out for him over you know, millions of years by previous incarnations of himself. Billions of years. The whole thing becomes a loop of death and rebirth. It, to me, is a sort of symbol of what the Hindus would call the samsara, the cycle of death yeah, and rebirth. absolutely. That when you are stuck in the material world, you are constantly going to be fighting for material gains until you can eventually break free and reach nirvana. I feel like this episode really uh, kind of echoes that in a sci-fi way where the doctor has to kill himself and slightly punch his way through a mountain full of diamond and make himself reborn, start the whole thing over again, and over millions and then billions of years, slowly inch his way till he can punch himself out of this maze. And a major reference of this episode and a sort of microcosm of what it is is a Brothers Grimm story called The Shepherd's Boy uh, that uh, you know talks about this little uh, shepherd's boy asking these, you know, great grand questions about the universe and the line that's iterated from that story is uh, uh, in lower Pomerania is the diamond mountain which is two miles high two miles wide and two miles deep every hundred years a little bird comes and sharpens its beak on it and when the whole mountain is worn away by this then the first second of eternity will be over and it's it's this crazy magnificent metaphor that then becomes what this whole episode is about and I I I love it so, so much because it shows us that uh, the Doctor and the Doctor Who as a show is reaching back through its own legacy and is reaching back through all of folklore and all of recorded time to you know, establish these great stories that it's telling and that the Doctor himself uh, is able to send that message to his, his you know, younger or um, less experienced self through time and through resurrection. It comes back to what I was saying before about our own regeneration, about that sense of continuity that we speak or that we experience. Um, the doctor is privileged with a really magnificent um, situation where he is a time traveler and he can travel anywhere in time and space. And he sometimes actually encounters earlier versions of himself uh, or later versions of himself and he can share information, right? Uh, he can say to his younger self, you know, you're going to be okay. Or he can rally his younger self into, uh, you know, making it and surviving. And that's not a privilege that all of us have. So it's, uh, it, it's sort of a, it, it's again a godlike thing that he's able to do is reach across time to get himself through the, the toughest experiences. But I think coming back to the idea of fatigue, 
that is actually, even though it's you know a critique I'm leveling at the showrunner, that was I think thematically important to this doctor. I think it was uh, you know an important choice that they chose to go with, go with an older actor, a more experienced actor, to take on the role after you know three really dashing, young, energetic, kinetic. Um, men taking on this role for them to go with someone a little bit more measured um, and with a little more maturity in his uh, in his performance and his gravitas. Uh, and at the end of Capaldi's run, we saw fatigue. We saw a, a doctor who was tired, who was ready to lay down, you know, his arms and you know take a break, and was ready to give up and not regenerate and die. And I think it was important for us to build to that in order to build energy for the next Doctor. And the latest episode, the Christmas special, really felt to me like a denouement. It really felt like falling action, which is not at all a critique. I thought it was interesting that it wasn't the you know swashbuckling adventure that previous Christmas specials have been. It was a moment where we quietly reflected on who the Doctor as a character is, why we need him in our universe, and what about humanity is worth dedicating that energy to? Uh, and I think it, it pretty beautifully, in a measured way, gave us the you know the rest and the strength to keep going. I totally, totally agree. I think we'll have to give some specifics there to back that up. So if you haven't caught up with the Doctor Who Christmas special, we're about to spoil it. The long and short of it is, is the Doctor gets to encounter his first iteration of himself who also is kind of struggling with, do I regenerate or do I die? And they sort of have this mixing of old and young doctor, even though they're both old men by human standards, but one is, you know, thousand years younger yeah. by doctor who time Lord standard. And they and, got a lot of comedy out of the fact that he was the doctor of the sixties. So he's got absolutely some backwards ideas about, about women gender and, and things like that. And sexuality. there's a beautiful metaphor and discussion about your memories surviving is enough in that there's this, you know, very far future time traveling society that's uploading human memories to the cloud. And ultimately this, this time traveling, uploading human memories to the cloud. And they're trying to get the memories from a soldier at World War II who was supposed to die in battle and throughout the adventure, at the very end of it, and this actually happened in human history. It was Christmas Day in, I'm, I'm sorry, I said World War II, I mean World War I. It was Christmas Day in World War I in the front between Germans and the British. You know, someone just started singing a Christmas carol. Yeah, and they and stopped fighting. They all stopped fighting for and a day. Both sides got together and, you know, made tea and sang carols and celebrated the holiday. Uh, and you know, completely reached across enemy lines to celebrate the fact that every one of us is just here on earth trying to, you know, live our lives and get back to our loved ones. It's a beautiful moment in human history. And it saves in the story this one soldier's life who was supposed to get killed. Yeah. But there was just enough delay in him, like, traveling through time that he got to live and experience this moment. And it was very from a Doctor Who Christmas special grand finale, you know, a huge exit like Matt Smith had at the town of Christmas, fending off all <laughs> yeah. of the that. It was very thematically muted, but very appropriate. 
and very quiet. And the doctor realizing that, you know, it was time for him to regenerate, that the doctor matters and the doctor needs to, to, to regenerate. And it, it was a very beautiful fitting end to it. I do want to say this for everyone that saw the episode. I said, be kind first. <laughs> I'm just taking credit for that one. That was a really nice moment for us when uh, when Capaldi is giving his send off and sort of giving a speech to the doctor of the future and uh, you know sending these affirmations for his future self. Um, that the last thing he says is, "Be kind, doctor. I let you go." Always try to be nice, but never fail, fail to, to be, be kind. kind. Um, and that's, you know, our send off at the end of every episode. So, yeah, that's certainly something that we want to drive home. And I think the episode, uh, like everything we've said tonight, deals with that question of, of regeneration, uh, not just for the doctor, but for all of us. Uh, the, the question of what we really are and what defines us, what defines our bodies and what defines our minds and our souls. Is it our name? Is it our cells? Is it our memories? And are we you know, are we us from moment to moment or are we always regenerating? Uh, and I, I think that's a question we have to keep asking ourselves. And will there be a resurrection beyond our fleshly existence? Will our bodies regenerate into another form or facet that we can't perceive or know right now is a question that will face us all and something we all will have to grapple with. And, um, I think we can draw a long connection between the mythologies of the ancient world to the pop culture stories that we see today. I think Doctor Who is one of the most perfect artifacts for that because so many times the Doctor is going back and interacting with our ancient world almost as if in a mythic way he's been shaping all of the myths <laughs> we've always had. Yeah, And uh, I, even though I give Peter Capaldi's run... AC minus. I did enjoy it, and I am looking forward to uh, what this new doctor and the the new showrunner can do with you know one of my most beloved characters. Yeah, and you know we we've got to say it. I'm just thrilled, thrilled, thrilled beyond thrilled to see uh, a woman and such a capable and talented woman take on this role in Jodie Whittaker. Uh, it's going to be really exciting to see what she brings to that character and what. Uh, you know, that presence is going to do for the show and whether it's going to reinvigorate or, you know, completely change what we're seeing on screen. So I'm very, very, very excited. Yeah. And I think, yeah, she is a fantastic actor and I think it was time. I think Moffat left the show, right? He did. Yeah. So yeah, this I was think it really was time. his goodbye as well. Yeah, I think it was time for Moffat to move on. Love you, Stephen Moffat. You know, it's just, yeah, well there's done. always time, yeah. you know, no, no animosity or hatred, just thanks and gratitude for what you did for when you did it. And, um, very excited. I think when this, uh, new doctor who season kicks off, expect us when it's done to talk about it again, because we love doctor who we do. And, uh, we want to know what you guys think, Laurel, how can people reach us? Hmm, let me see if somewhere in my mind palace I have a speech prepared. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, please catch up with us on our social media channels. We are on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We are on Facebook. You can search The Midnight Myth Podcast on Facebook. You can visit us on the website, www.midnightmyth.com. There's a contact form there if you want to drop us a line. And we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast, pushing all of this great graphic and 
you know, photographic content your way. So check us out. And then if you're enjoying what you hear, like we said, get on Apple podcasts and hit subscribe, uh, leave us a, a five-star rating, if you will, or a review. We love to hear your feedback and just let us know what you think and what you want to hear in the new year. And shout out to the folks who have reviewed us. We got two more reviews. It like really touched Laurel and I's yeah, heart. Yeah, like, two more five-star reviews, which is just so great, yeah. you know, to see your feedback out there. Yeah, sincerely, thank you to everyone who took time out of their day to review us. And uh, until next time, try your best to be nice, but never fail to be kind. Be kind.